Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. It's easy, I should say, to maybe kind of neglect our worship of the Lord, our dependence upon Him and stuff. And so they're going into a place where that's going to be a temptation for them. And it's going to be an issue for them. And so that's why the, I believe that's why the Lord is re, uh, reminding them of these uh, festivals, these feasts and these offerings that they're to be offering once they get into the promised land. So, but let's go ahead and go to Lord in prayer and then we'll dig, dig into the study. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we're grateful for an opportunity to gather together to study your word. Lord, we're, as, we're, as we're singing this morning, Christmas carols, we're reminded, Lord, that uh, Christmas is, is around the corner. Lord, it's coming soon. And Lord, just to rejoice in the fact that uh, it's because of your son, Jesus Christ, that died on the cross for our sins, came and was born a baby, lived to be a man, and lived a holy life, the, the life that we couldn't live, and then died on a cross for our sins. And Lord, that was the entire purpose for Christ's life was to come and to give his life a ransom for many. And so, Lord, we just rejoice with that. We thank you, Lord. And this morning, Lord, as we study your word, I pray that you might fill me with your spirit as I share your word with your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So last week in Numbers chapter 28, we talked about all the different offerings that the children of Israel were to give. Uh, we ended with verse 26, but up until then, they were required to offer offerings at appointed times, and they were burnt offerings. The burnt offering was an animal that was sacrificed and was cons completely consumed on the altar. With the burnt offering, they were also to offer, um, they were also to, to use fine flour. We talked about that last week, the significance of this flour. It wasn't your ordinary flour that you'd buy from a grocery store. This was, this was uh, ground to a point that it was, it was fit for a king. I mean, it was, it was like the, the labor that went into producing that that flour was amazing. And then, of course, the olive oil, which was beaten from olives. Um, and it just really speaks of offering the best that we can to the Lord God. Uh, and that was also added to that was what was known as the drink offering. And in chapter 28, it talks about strong drink being used. And, and what it just speaks of is like the best of the best of the wine that they could pour out before the Lord. And, and really that also, like the burnt offering, it speaks of our total consecration to the Lord. Um, one of the things that we mentioned last week was that the phrase sweet aroma to the Lord. As we go through the Lord's telling the children of Israel, I want you to do this and this and this. This is a sweet aroma to me. And what I talked about for us last week is really the application for you and I is when, when our flesh is is burnt on the altar. For example, when we when we die to ourselves, that's pleasing to the Lord. And this was a picture of that. And so these offerings that we talked about last week, it was a way for the children of, of Israel to worship the Lord. It was a way for them to be thankful for his blessings. It was a way for them to realize that they just, they continued to, they needed to continue to completely depend upon the Lord. And especially, like I said, especially as they enter into the promised land, how important that would be. 
Now, also, kind of in between there, because not every offering had it, but every once in a while, the Lord would mention a sin offering that they were to offer. And again, that just that reminds us just of the constant need of atonement uh, from sin. And so this was something that was really ingrained into the children of Israel. Um, I remember uh, a couple years ago on the internet, uh, there are some Samaritans that live around in Israel, and uh, I don't necessarily recommend that you go check it out, but they have a video on YouTube, I believe, where they actually do a sacrifice of a, of a lamb. And uh, man, I tell you, it's gross. It's like, I'm like, oh. you know, think about how many animals they sacrificed during this time. It, it's, it would have been just, it would have been intense. And so just the, the, the way the Lord just kind of laid on their hearts, hey, there's a, there's a price for sin and it's the shedding of blood. And so this would have been really ingrained into the children of Israel. And of course, we're on the other side of the cross. And so we have the blessings of Christ being the atonement for our sin. Well, we're going to pick it up here at chapter 28, verse 26. Also on the day of the feast of first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall uh, have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year, with their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, three tenths of an ephah for each bull, two tenths for the one ram, and one tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one of the kids of the goats to make atonement for you. Be sure they are without blemish. You shall present them with their drink offerings besides the regular burnt offering with its grain offering. So it's kind of, it's kind of a little bit uh, hidden in here, but the, really there's two separate and yet related events that uh, God is describing here. First of all, it's the day or the feast of the first fruits and then followed by the Feast of Weeks. Now, in this passage that I just read, uh, the Feast of First Fruits, it's, it's kind of like just, just mentioned in passing. But when we go to Leviticus chapter 23, it's dealt with in detail. Uh, if, if you're taking notes, just make a note, uh, Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. That's where this is mentioned, the Feast of First Fruits. Um, but I want to kind of set the context. So the children of Israel, they would uh, celebrate the Passover. And for the children of Israel, of course, that commemorated the deliverance uh, that God gave them from bondage to Egypt. Uh, for you and I, Paul says Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He delivered us from sin and death. Well, immediately following the Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was a seven-day feast. Um, and for the children of Israel, it commemorated when the children, right after the Passover, when the children of Israel left Egypt and they left in haste. They couldn't, they, they, they couldn't let their dough rise because they had to leave right away. And so a part of this feast was that they were to get rid of any kind of yeast, any kind of leavening agents in their homes, in their dwelling places. And it was just a reminder to them of how they left in, uh, in haste from Egypt. And you know, in the Bible, leaven is a picture of sin. And so for the children of Israel also was a picture that they were to be a holy separate a separate uh, people set apart for the Lord. Uh, and so this was to be instilled in them. For you and I, the feast uh, 
of unleavened bread. Again, I mentioned Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And so therefore, it says, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. You and I, we've been, we've been washed clean from our sins. We truly are unleavened. We are sanctified saints. And so you and I, we're to keep the feast, not with the old leaven, not with the uh, leaven of malice and wickedness, Paul says, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, what Paul is saying is you don't just get rid of all the sin, get rid of all the, the things that are, you know, you avoid sin in every way. I mean, we're to do that. But it's not just a, a, this is what I can't do, that, you know, I can't do that, I can't do this because I'm a Christian. It's motivated by the love of the Lord. Man, I love the Lord Jesus and what he did for me. And therefore, man, I don't want anything to get in the way of my relationship with the Lord. And so that's what this is for you and I. Well, while the Feast of Unleavened bre uh, Bread was taken, again, I mentioned it was a seven-day feast, the Feast of first fruits actually ran concurrently with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was the day after the Sabbath, which is known as the first day of the, first day of the week, so it would have been our Sunday. For the children of Israel, what they were to do on that day, they were to take a, a sheaf of barley, and they were to wave that sheaf before the Lord. And what that did was they were commemorating their receiving the manna in the wilderness. And this, this, this wave, uh, waving the barley sheaf, it was the first fruits because it was to remind them, hey, this is the first of the harvest, but man, there's a, there's a bigger harvest coming. And so for the children of Israel, what it meant to them was God was providing them manna, but man, when they got to the land of blessings, the land of milk and honey, man, that's when the full harvest would be for them. Incidentally, and if you're students of the Bible, I encourage you to dig into this and, and discover it. But that same exact day in history where the day of first fruits was observed, that is when Noah's ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. When the children of Israel were delivered from, or when Noah and his family were delivered from the flood and they set foot in a new life, a new beginning, it actually happened. They rested on the day of that, we, that, that the children of Israel celebrated the Feast of First Fruits. Very fascinating. What does it mean for you and I? Well, you and I, we're commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ because he rose when the Feast of First Fruits was being, being celebrated, when that sheaf was being waved. That's when Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week after the Sabbath. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, I mean, I grieve. We've lost loved ones. I'm sure you have too. And we grieve over their loss. And I think that's a natural and it's a normal and there's a perfectly acceptable thing to do. But as believers, man, we don't grieve like the world that has no hope, right? We grieve because we grieve, of course, of the loss, but we also have the hope of the resurrection because Jesus Christ was the first fruits, the first fruits of the resurrection. So uh, for you and I, it's a totally different thing. Well, there's a very practical application for you and I. You know, after the resurrection, in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, it says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. After the disciples saw the resurrected Lord, saw the resurrected Lord with their own physical lives, man, their lives were transformed. You know, James 
was one of the brothers of, of Jesus, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. He didn't even know that, he didn't even accept that Jesus was the Messiah until he saw the resurrected Lord and then his life was changed. Same with Jude, another brother of the Lord. Those that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, their lives were transformed and they gave witness to the resurrected Lord. And so the application, I think, for you and I is do our lives give witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In other words, are we different because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, let me read something. Paul wrote this in Romans 6, verses 4 through 6. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin." Our citizenship is in heaven. Man, do we live and talk and act like aliens? I mean, you can tell when there's an alien, right? Someone from another country, you can say, you're, from, you're not from around here, are you? You're probably thinking that of me. This guy's not from around here. You know, he just talks kind of weird. Um, I do talk weird, by the way. But, uh, you know, you can tell when there's an alien in your presence. I'm not talking like, you know, the Martian little green guy. <laughs> Someone from another country, you can tell uh, because they talk, they might have different habits or different, the way they, they live is a little bit differently than what you do. There's something different about them. And for you and I, after the resurrection, we are aliens too. And so our lives, there should be something different about us. Paul said this in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. There's power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the power to transform a life. And so going back to this, uh, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 15, after the celebration of the Feast of First Fruits, it says this, You shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. So 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, the first uh, uh, would be the Feast of Weeks, excuse me. So 50 days after, we know it as Pentecost. It's a, it's a Greek word for, for uh, it might be Greek or Latin. It, it means 50. For the children of Israel... That commemorated the completion of the barley harvest. It was a time of great joy and thanksgiving. Now, the Jewish people also tied a tradition to that. Their tradition was that that day, that, that the, uh, the Feast of Booths, or excuse me, the Feast of, uh, uh, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, I'll just call it Pentecost, it's easier for me that way. Um, they said that that's the day when Moses receive the commandments on Mount Sinai. Um, that's what the Jewish people believed at that point. Think about that. You know, we did a study in, in uh, Exodus when the children of Israel were out Mount Sinai. And if you recall those chapters, maybe you've read it before. Um, Mount Sinai was on fire. 
I mean, there was a there was an intense flame on the mountain. There was a great noise of a trumpet, and it got louder and louder and louder. And the children of Israel just they were frightened. In fact, they said, "Man, Moses, you receive the commandments from the Lord. We we don't want to hear His voice. It's too frightening for us." It was such an an awe-inspiring, an awesome thing to behold. So there was fire at Mount Sinai and a great noise. Um, they were given the law written by the finger of God on on tablets of stone. The problem was, you recall the story, while Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, what were the children of Israel doing? Man, they molded a golden calf and they were worshiping the golden calf, saying, this is the God that brought you out of, out of uh, Egypt. And so the problem was, when the law was given at Mount Sinai, 3,000 men died that day. Interesting part of the observation of this feast involves the baking of two loaves of leavened bread, which is kind of interesting. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So according to, to, to Jewish tradition, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, uh, commemorated the birth of the nation of Israel when the law was given. Well, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on that first Pentecost, and you can read it in the book of Acts, what happened? Well, there was also a great noise. There was a great rushing wind. The noise caused a commotion in Jerusalem. People were like, what is that? And they were all rushing over to find out what was going on. And what did they see? They saw tongues of fire appearing on the disciples that were gathered there, and they were filled with the Spirit. The Spirit was given that day, and that's when the church was born. And instead of the law being written on the tablets of stone, at that point, the law was written on the tablets of their hearts, the disciples. And recall mentioned 3,000 people died at the giving of the law. If you read that account in Acts, 3,000 souls were added to the church that day after Peter gave his, his sermon. And the Bible says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And those two leaven loaves, the Jewish people believed that that represented the tablets of the law. But, you know, why would it be leavened? Because leaven in the Bible is, is a picture of sin. Well, here's what I believe. It prefigured an imperfect and yet a redeemed church made up of two loaves, Gentiles and Jewish believers. We're, we're sinners, but we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we come together and we're one body here. And so I think that's what that prefigures. There's a very practical application for you and I regarding this feast, and that is this. Are you and I filled with and walking in the Spirit? Are we submitted to Him? So we're wrapping up here, uh, Numbers chapter 28. These feasts mentioned occurred during the spring. These were known as the spring feasts. Now when we get into chapter 29, we'll be looking at what was known as the fall feasts because they happened in the fall later on in the year. So verse 1 of chapter 29. And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work, for it is a day of blowing the trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Their grain offering shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats has a sin offering to make atonement for you. 
Besides the burn offering with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burn offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings, according to their ordinance as a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire uh, to the Lord. So in the seventh month, which would have been our September, was the Feast of Trumpets. And it was a day for blowing the trumpets. And for the children of Israel, it marked the end of the harvests. It was a time of thanksgiving, uh, thankfulness to the Lord. Um, after the exile of the, of the people, the Jewish people from Babylon, uh, and later on this became known as Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. Um, and so for the children of Israel, it became a time to kind of shake off their spiritual drowsiness. You know, it's a new year. Have you ever made new year resolutions? I'm going to shake off the old stuff and now I'm going to do something new. And we, we make all these, you know, these commitments that we're going to do. And they usually last about two weeks and then, you know, that's it. Um, well, for them, it was a time to prepare for the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. And that was the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And that would follow shortly after in the same month. So this Feast of Trumpets, um, we talked about back in Numbers chapter 10, the children of Israel were instructed to create or to make two silver trumpets. And the purpose, if you remember back in Numbers 10, the purpose for those trumpets to blow them, uh, they were to call the children of Israel, they had different reasons, they were to call the children of Israel to gather together for an assembly or um, they were also used for directing the movement of the camps so the different tribes would set out according to the trumpet blasts. It was also if an enemy approached and was attacking, it was to sound an alarm and it was also used at the beginning of these feasts to commence the beginning or the these appointed feasts and sacrifices. For you and I, there's some prophetic application to the Feast of Trumpets. Two silver trumpets. The first blast uh, really gathered the nation of Israel, figuratively, it gathered the nation of Israel to God at Mount Sinai. The second trumpet blast hasn't happened yet. It will be to gather the bride of Christ uh, to heaven, to Jesus Christ. Note the significance uh, of this being in the seventh month. And the seventh month is, the seven is the number of completion. And the Bible says that the trumpet will blast when the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. That's in Romans chapter 11, if you're taking notes, verse 25. That marks the end of the church age. And Paul described it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. He says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. There's a very practical application for you and I. Are we living in expectation of Christ's return for his church, for his bride? If you are living in expectation of Christ's return, it affects how you live. You know, we don't want to be found, or we want to be found faithful, right? We don't want to be caught up in sin or caught up in false teachings. We want to be focused having the right priorities in our lives, and we want to be fruitful, man. We want to, we want to be ready and, and like, Lord, oh, here you are. Not, you know, we don't want to be caught by surprise. We want to be fruitful, and the best way to be fruitful is to go fishing. Fishers are like, yeah, all right. 
Jesus was talking about being fishers of men. That's the best way for you and I to be fruitful, reaching the lost for Jesus Christ while we have the time to do that. And so verse 7, now there's the next offerings. Verse 7, on the 10th day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall afflict your souls. You shall do no uh, customary work. Uh, excuse me, you shall do no, uh, excuse me, let me read that over again. On the 10th day of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall afflict your souls and you shall not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma. One young bull one ram and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for, for the one ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, besides the sin offering for atonement, the regular burn offering with its grain offering, and their drink offerings." So now we have the next offerings, and that would be right on the heels of the Feast of Trumpets was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, that was the one year that the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. The one year where they could go in and offer atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. That was the entire purpose for the Day of Atonement. The Bible says that the children of Israel, they were to afflict their souls. Now prophetically, for the children of Israel, the church, uh, prophetically, the, the, the Feast of Trumpets points to the rapture of the church. And following that, so the church has already been raptured, the Day of Atonement, what that is prophetically a picture of is the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9. It starts at this time. The Bible calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. And it will be a time of affliction for the Jewish people. But, and I like this, but during that time, God is going to be working in the hearts of the Jewish people. If you read the book of Revelation, there's going to be 144,000 Jewish evangelists during that time. There's going to be two witnesses that are going to be in Jerusalem preaching during that time. And the Bible says there's going to be a great harvest of souls during that time. That's for the Jewish people. Now, it's also a time of great tribulation, tribulation, excuse me, for a Christ-rejecting world. And it's going to culminate at the Battle of Armageddon. I want to read something to you out of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9 through 10. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out uh, pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. What that's talking about in Zechariah, it's to be the fulfillment of what Paul wrote in Romans 11, verses 26 and 27. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now there's a, a very practical application for you and I regarding this. Again, this is a picture, or this is prophetically speaks um, of the, the time of Jacob's trouble where the church will be raptured at this time. 
But I want to read this to you, Romans 11, verses 28 through 33. He's speaking about the Jewish people, Paul is. He says, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Because the Jewish people rejected Jesus, the gospel went to the Gentiles. And I'm assuming most of us are Gentiles. There might be some Jewish believers here. But we're, we're recipients of that because the Jewish people rejected Jesus Christ. And by and large, the people today, the Jewish people today have rejected Jesus Christ, their Messiah. But Bible, the Bible says, Romans 11, that during that time, all Israel will be saved. God will be faithful to deliver them. You think about the nation of Israel today. I mean, they've been, you know, they were, uh, in 2,000 years ago, they were completely dispersed. And yet, here they are, gathered together as a nation once more. They have their culture intact. They have their worship intact, their nationality. All these things after 2000, it's a miracle. The nation of Israel is a miracle. And so here's the application for you and I. If God is faithful to the Jewish person, man, he's going to be faithful to you. And all those promises that we read, God is faithful, and he proved it by showing his faithfulness to the Jews. So for us, I'm hoping that you're encouraged this morning. Well, we get to this next and final feast, verse 12. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work, and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. You, you shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. Their grain offering shall be fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the second day, present 12 young bulls, two rams, 14 lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering for their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs by their number according to their ordinance. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. On the third day, present 11 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. Also, one goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burn offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. 
On the fourth day, present ten bulls, two rams and fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams and for the lambs by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, one kid of the goats has a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. On the fifth day, present nine bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering, their drink offerings for the bulls and for the rams and for the lambs by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, one goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. On the sixth day, present eight bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs. Almost sounds like a Christmas thing that we sing, right? Uh, on the sixth day, present eight lamb, excuse me, eight bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. Also, one goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. On the seventh day, present seven bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in the first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, one goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the eighth day, you shall have a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burn offering, uh, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bull, for the ram and for the lambs by their number, according to the ordinance. Also one goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. These you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feasts, besides your vowed, off vowed offerings and your freewill offerings, as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. So Moses told the children of Israel everything. So Moses told the children of Israel everything, just as the Lord commanded Moses. That's an amazing feast. That's an amazing offering. This final feast was known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jewish people call it Sukkot. And what they were to do is they were to commemorate their dwelling in tents in the wilderness. And so they were actually to go out and take palm branches and, and, and tree branches and they were to make a little shelter and they were to sleep outside under the stars during this feast to remember that they were led through the wilderness and that God provided for them. It reminded them of God's faithfulness as they traveled through the wilderness. Now, I mentioned that the Feast of Trumpets prophetically points to the rapture of the church. And, and the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, no, excuse me, let me back up again. Uh, uh, the Day of Atonement uh, points to the tribulation, the affliction of souls, of Daniel's ninth, uh, 70th week for the children of Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles prophetically points to the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. So it's after the rapture of the church, at the end of the great tribulation known as the time of Jacob's trouble, 
at the Battle of Armageddon. You can read that in Revelation chapter 19. Christ returns with his bride to defeat the Antichrist, and he then sets up his throne in Jerusalem and reigns for a thousand years. And what's interesting is if you read all the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, Zechariah 14 is a perfect example. That Feast of Tabernacles is going to be observed during the, during the millennium. That's the one feast that they'll be doing, doing during the millennium, which is interesting. Now, you know, it, what's interesting to me is when you look at the, the teaching of the millennium and you go to the New Testament, you know, it's, it's not mentioned a whole lot, right? In fact, Revelation 20, it's only mentioned briefly. And the reason why I think it is is because in the Old Testament, it's written so extensively. There's so many details in the book in the Old Testament. And I think that's why we don't have as many details in the New Testament. Now, as a result of that, um, there are churches that believe that uh, the, the, uh, the millennial reign of Christ, that it's not a literal reign of Christ on the earth. Uh, they believe that it's a, a figurative, uh, or it's, an, it's an allegory of the reign of the church right now. Um, I, don't, I don't believe in that. And uh, I believe it's a literal reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. And here's my reasoning, one of my reasons um, why. When I look at prophecy in the Bible, and you, you get a prophecy and, and you see later on it's been fulfilled. There's been many prophecies that have been given and then later on they've been fulfilled. Let me ask you this. Have any of those that were given that were literal prophecies, have they ever been fulfilled figuratively as an allegory? I've never seen that in the Bible. Let me give you a couple examples. There's a guy by the name of Josiah. In 1 Kings chapter 13, 2, there's a prophecy concerning him. It says, Behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. That was 340 years before King Josiah was born. And King Josiah did exactly that. He took the priests of Baal and he, and he sacrificed them on their altars that they had made for Baal. And he took the bones of all the priests that had, that had, that had done that and he burned it on the altar. It was a literal fulfillment 340 years after it was given. There's another person that was named in the Bible, Cyrus. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, the Lord says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. 200 years later, the king of Persia was Cyrus, and he allowed the children of Israel to return from captivity. The Babylonians had been conquered by the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus was their king. And he allowed the children of Israel to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. 200 years after that prophecy was given, he, it was a literal fulfillment. Another one was the city of Tyre. In Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 5, it says, It shall be a place for spreading nets in the midst of the sea. Tyre, there was, two, there was two cities of Tyre. One was on the land and right directly across in, in, the, in the Mediterranean was the island of Tyre, which wasn't very far, and that was impenetrable. And it was considered like the best defense. You couldn't, you, you couldn't attack it because it was, it was its own island. Well, what happened was eventually, 
I think it was the Babylonians conquered and destroyed the, the, the nation of uh, the, the city of Tyre on the land, Tyre, excuse me, they, but they couldn't get to the, to the island city. So they kind of left it alone. Well, later on, Alexander the Great, what he did, you know, and the, and the people in Tyre, they're like, man, this, we're, we're safe here. What he started doing is he took the ruins from the old city and he started putting it in the ocean and he made a causeway to the island of Tyre and it allowed his forces to conquer and destroy Tyre. And literally that place, that causeway in the ocean, it was a place where fishermen later on would put their nets on to dry out in the sun. A literal fulfillment. Christmas is coming up soon. Isaiah 7 verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I can tell you that's not an allegory. That's not a, a figurative thing of something, you know. It, it literally, the virgin gave birth to Jesus Christ, our Messiah. We could go on and on and on for hours. L let's do it. No, just kidding. But, but seriously, go through the Bible, and I challenge you, look at any prophecies that have been fulfilled and say, was any of them fulfilled like, like an allegory or figuratively? No, they were fulfilled literally. And so for you or for me, Man, when I read about the millennial reign of Christ on the earth, there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ on the earth, folks. Uh, you can tell me I'm wrong if it doesn't happen, but that'll be too late then, right? <laughs> it's going to happen. Well, there is a very practical application for you and I. Jesus told a parable in Luke 19, verse 11, and it's known as the parable of the minas. And in that parable, there were... There, were, uh, uh, there was a master, and he was going away to a different country, and he had 10 servants, and he had 10 minas, and he gave each of the servants a mina and told them, do business while I'm gone. And so he went away, and when he comes back, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing the parable, obviously, but when he returns, he called those servants to him, and one of them said, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. And the master's reply was, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. And there was another servant, Jesus said, that came to his master and said, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And the master replied to him, you also be over five cities. Now, granted, this is a parable, okay? But I find it interesting that Jesus used the example of ruling over cities. Is that just an illustration of a principle? Or could Jesus be alluding to something that's actually going to take place? And the reason why I say that is in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 through 3, Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. They're, going to, they're taking each other to court all the time. And Paul says this, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? When are we judging the world? When are we judging angels? When is that going to happen? Well, let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So what's the practical application? I think to the extent that you and I are faithful in this life as believers, 
I believe it's going to have a direct impact on what you and I are entrusted with during the millennium. Are we doing the master's business until he comes? He's given us gifts and talents. Are we wisely investing what he has entrusted to each one of us? He's given us time. He's given us days, years, months. Are we investing what he has given, uh, what he has given us wisely? Now, here's a good investment tip for you. This is a millennium, wise, a millennium investment tip here. You heard it here first. Proverbs 11, verse 30, he who wins souls is wise. And being about the master's business, sharing the gospel, praying with people, uh, you know, uh, just being a witness, living our lives in a way that people go, man, there's something different about you. It's not just that you're weird, right? It's because you love Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention there to verse 39 once again. So, we went through and I, you know, I, I read through all these different sacrifices each day, all these, all these animals that were slain. Verse 39, these, the ones that we just read, you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feast besides your vowed offerings and your freewill offerings, as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. I don't know if you caught that. These were in addition to all the other offerings that the children of Israel had to offer. What would the children of Israel offer each year? Now, this is besides any free will offering, like you said, you know, I want to offer this to the Lord, or any special offerings. What we just read in these chapters, these different, or, in the beginning also including chapter 28, they were to offer 113 bulls each year, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, more than a ton of flour, more than a thousand bottles of oil and wine were offered to the Lord. Costly. You go, well, what's at the heart of Israel's worship? I can tell you, it's sacrifice. Sacrifice. A costly sacrifice. The best sacrifice. Why? Well, because what Paul said in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his son, his own son, but delivered him up for us all. God spared no expense for you and I. Gave his son to die on the cross for us. He, he delivered his own son for you and I. That's the, that's the best sacrifice. I mean, that's the most costliest sacrifice. As you as a parent, could you imagine doing that for your child? I'm going to have your, my, my son or my daughter die for all these people that don't deserve it, that, that hate me, but I'm going to have them die for them because I love them. There is no greater sacrifice. And so the Lord says, he's, he's, he's showing the children of Israel that worship, worshiping is sacrifice. You know, the Bible talks about offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. Offering a sacrifice with the fruit of our lips, thanking Him and praising Him. When we're worshiping here at church, man, I encourage you, you know, sing along. Worship the Lord with your voice and with your heart. Worship Him at home. You know, these were regular offerings that were, uh, these offerings, the burnt offerings we talked about last week, that was every day, morning and evening. It's not just like, okay, you can just come to, come and worship at Jerusalem, you know, one day a year, you know, and some people, some Christians or people do that, right? They just show up on Christmas and Easter and then you don't see them the rest of the year. They were to offer, worship the Lord through these offerings day in and day out. 
And so for you and I, how much more of a picture it is for you and I to offer on a regular basis to worship the Lord daily. So there's sacrifice, and it was a costly sacrifice. And then if you can imagine how much blood flowed, just amazing. You know, on the Day of Atonement, this is what the historians, I think it was Josephus that said it. Um, on the Day of Atonement, when they would sacrifice all the lambs for the children of Israel, um, they would, the blood, of course, would be run, poured out at the altar. But they had like a little gutter-like thing that ran out to the uh, brook of Kidron. And that brook of Kidron, it would be, become red. I mean, it was, just, it was just completely red with the blood of all these animals. So think of all the blood that was, that was shed. And you think of, what does that speak of? That speaks of the atonement. All these sacrifices, these sin offerings, the drink offerings, the burnt offerings, they all point to and prefigure Jesus Christ. Because he was trying to prepare his people for the coming of the Messiah. And for you and I, man, praise God, we don't have to have 113 lambs and bulls and all these things that we have to sacrifice. Jesus Christ fulfilled all that for you and I. It's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Man, what a blessing. Why don't we go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that uh, I think as New Testament Christians, sometimes we have a hard time grasping what the Jewish person experienced through, their, through each year as they would offer their sacrifices. But Lord, just to realize all, all that blood, all that, all the innocent animals that were slain, Lord, they were. There was a picture of you, the Lamb of God, who lived the perfect life, the life that we can't live because we're sinners. We've we've already blown it. We were born in sin, and yet, Lord, you lived that perfect life, and then you died. You paid the price for our sin. You didn't sin. You paid the price for our sin on the cross. And so, Lord, as we just think about that and reflect on that, Lord, we thank you. And thanking you, it just seems like it's shallow. It's not enough. But, Lord God, I pray that we as believers would not only thank you and love you in return for your great love, but, Lord, we would offer our lives as a living sacrifice to you day in and day out, remembering what you did for us. So I thank you so much for, your, uh, for the remembrance of this, Lord God. Lord, now as we finish with this last song, I pray, Lord God, that we would just offer the sacrifice of praise to you, the fruit of our lips that comes from our hearts in thankfulness for what you've done. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.